Tonight, we are considering, for the first time, the doctrine of God. And the first stop on this train is the existence of God. Um, How can we know that something that we can't see exists? Well, it's important to know how the church has answered this question and how we should answer it today. There are a number of ways to answer this question. I don't pretend that I'm going to be able to do it all justice tonight in just a 30-minute little section or segment, but I hope that the things that I'm able to, to, to provide tonight will be at least a foundation, a foundation for where you can continue your study, uh, where you can uh, begin. So, I want to begin, though, by reading a passage of Scripture from John chapter 20. This passage of Scripture became very important to me uh, when I was 14 years old. And I, and I began, or, or, or I came to a place in my own personal walk where I experienced kind of what's an apologetic crisis, uh, a, a crisis of faith, um, a season of doubt where I wondered, are the things that I've been told by my parents and my grandparents real? Are they real enough for me to stake my life on them? Uh, Are they real enough for me to depend on? Many people experience the same thing. Um, I think probably all of us at some point experience these kinds of questions. The way that the Lord sustained me was by taking me through this valley of, of doubt and honestly fear and bringing me out on the other side of it stronger. And I hope um, that, that the things we talk about tonight will be helpful um, for us as we consider our doubts. John chapter 20 says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. See, this is the interesting thing about the Bible. If you were trying to foist, if you were trying to foist onto, good gracious, that is a tenacious little fly. (laughs) All of this is going on the podcast, too. This is wonderful, because I don't know how to edit stuff out, so... If you were going to try to foist some kind of false religion on to people for the sake of making yourself wealthy or, or, or whatever the case may be, there's a couple things you wouldn't do. First of all, you probably wouldn't let yourself be boiled alive for it or fed to the, to the, to the lions in the Colosseum, right? You would just renounce your faith so that you wouldn't have to endure that if this was just a, some kind of, you know... Uh, scheme that you're trying to pull. The second thing that you wouldn't try to do if you were just making this stuff up, the second thing you wouldn't do is record all of your own most embarrassing moments, right? But the Bible does that at every point. I mean, the Bible presents even Jesus' own disciples as incredibly dull many times, right? It does that. What this is, it is an honest, real-life, human, up-close-and-personal, flesh-and-bone account of how these people stumbled through coming to see Jesus for who he was. And as we're about to see in the Gospel of John, it's going to take us a number of weeks, a number of months to do this, but the Gospel of John presents the disciples as being 
as having a veil over their eyes until after the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, the very people who should have been able to see him for who he was because they had him as their pastor, as their shepherd for some three years. We see they present, the Bible presents, the authors of the Gospels present themselves as weak and as human. Here's an example. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appeared to them, right? Scales are falling off of their eyes, but it wasn't able to happen for Thomas. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, remember the side that was pierced, unless I place my fingers into the wounds of the risen Lord, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Can you see the care of Jesus? Can you see his attitude toward the doubting? His attitude toward the doubting is not angry, furrowed brow. His anger is, I want to give you what you need to see me for who I am. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing. Notice what is, what is required to have eternal life that by believing you may have life in His name. Beautiful passage of Scripture. Teaches us many things about the love of Jesus, how He is gentle and lowly, how He makes Himself, He accommodates Himself to the weakness of us sinners. So how can we know that God exists? What kind of certainty is needed? Do we need some kind of scientific certainty or do we need moral certainty? People make decisions every day based on what is called moral certainty. I don't know if you recently heard, but there's a crack in the I-40 bridge that goes across the Mississippi River going it from Tennessee into Arkansas, right? People every day made that trek Right? They made that trip commuting to work, commuting from work. Taking a load of whatever in their 18-wheeler across there and back, across there and back. All the while, it wasn't a sure foundation beneath them. Is believing in Christ a similar picture? We make decisions every day based on moral certainty. You know that there are parts in your car, I'm talking about like 25-cent gaskets that if they fail, you won't be able to apply your brakes, right? 
and we every day have faith, have a moral certainty, like we have confidence that these things are going to work as they're supposed to, right? We make decisions every day on the same kind of thing. Here's the first way that we can know that God exists. There is an inner sense of God inside all humans. There's an inner sense. It's it's almost as if Romans chapter 1 presents it like this, that you, you, you kind of actually know that there is a God, but because of our Genesis 3 condition, because of our Jeremiah 17, 9 hearts, we kind of suppress this truth. Calvin called this the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. We, we have this sense that there's, there's got to be, there's got to be a reason and a logic behind the things that we experience. Paul said that it's this sense that we suppress in unrighteousness. I want to read from Romans 1. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their their foolish hearts were darkened. Psalm 14 says, that these things are set, that when we, when we look out at creation, we look out and see the fine tuning of the earth, the beauty, the fact that we even have a taste for beauty, where does that come from? What, what's the evolutionary purpose behind beauty and what, what is called aesthetics? The fact that we can all look at the same landscape and all of us in the room can say, that is beautiful. What does that inner sense of beauty, that inner sense of good, where did that come from? That certain things are beautiful. It comes from the fact that a God who defines beauty created this world and said it is good. And we as image bearers of God have the capacity inside of us to agree with God that his creation is good. He has implanted inside of some piece of DNA that we've never even been told about. Some, this, this sensus divinitatis, this sense of the divine, we bear his image, and so we have the capacity to see that what is before us sings about the God who created it. There is inside of us a sense of the divine. We're going to talk about this later, but where... Where does our sense of right and wrong come from? You know, some people would say that it, it's, it's, not even, it's not even nature, it's nurture. That you only come to believe that things are right and, and things are wrong because your parents taught you that. But this can't be true because even people who grew up in terrible households still are able to determine, still are able to see, sometimes because of their bad raising, what is good and what is bad. There seems to be this universal acknowledgement in all societies that certain things are bad. 
certain things are good. Where does our morality come from? This, the sense the divine is implanted in us, even though it has been twisted, even though it has been skewed by Genesis 3 and the fall, by our own sinfulness, is still there. It's left over, broken a little bit, but even a mirror, when a mirror is broken, you can still walk into the bathroom and say, that's a mirror. You know. Secondly, there's, there's evidence of Scripture and nature. Um, again, this is just a very brief 33,000-foot overview. But there's evidence of Scripture and nature. The unity of the Scriptures. This is, again... What I'm trying to demonstrate slowly but surely every Sunday night that all 66 books in the Bible, all six genres, or, or at least how one person has divided them, all 35 authors written over a span of time of about 1,500 years all point to the same direction, the Christ. Christ is all over the book of Genesis. Christ is all over the book of Exodus, right? The true and better covering for Adam and Eve. The true and better lamb, sacrifice, or ram caught in the thicket. The true and better Passover, right? In Exodus, in Passover, the blood had to be spilled. It had to be put over the door so that judgment could be averted. The true and better you know, parting of the waters, right? Jesus held back the wrath for those who are his people, and the wrath is coming for those who are enemies of him. It's all over the Ezra and Nehemiah as we looked at it. It's all over Esther, the book of Esther. It's all over every single book in the Old Testament. It's telling this one story. How could it be that all of these different authors and all of these different genres, books, and time span could all point in the same direction? The scriptures bear witness to the truth of what they teach. You know, I recently read the Quran, uh, I guess in 2019. And what I was just struck by was just how was just how empty it was. And that the God that it painted a picture of was just incredibly, incredibly barren. I mean, there was there were no there was no comfort. There was no vision of 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 a God who loves his creatures and, and draws near to them. There was none of that. There were just these principles set down and a God who's, who's distant and he's not imminent. He's, he's just far off and it's quite cold. You just read the Bible and it just comes alive, it seems like. Another evidence from Scripture or nature is what we call the presuppositional approach. Different approaches to apologetics. One of them that is probably where I uh, find myself it's called a presuppositional approach. Everyone has presuppositions. You know that. Everyone, everyone presupposes certain things. Everyone supposes either the existence of God or the non-existence of God. Everyone has priors that they, that they bring to, to any, any discussion or any uh, area of life. Does it make more sense to presuppose that everything we experience is completely meaningless. Because, friends, at the bottom of it, if there is no God, there is no meaning to life. We are all utterly accidental. We are all utterly meaningless. 
And it doesn't matter if you go home tonight and decide to murder someone or, des- or decide to send someone flowers. It's all completely meaningless if there is no God. Does it make more sense of the beauty? When we look out and see beauty, does it make more sense to assume that there is no God and that that is accidental? Or does it make more sense to assume or to presuppose that there is a God who has given us all the capacity to see beauty. The fact that we all have a sense of morality, of right and wrong, does it make more sense to presuppose that that is completely accidental? Or does it make more sense to presuppose that that is there on purpose? Do our lives have any meaning at all? Which approach to life makes the most sense of what we see. The fine-tuning of the earth, the fact that if we were just a couple of miles closer to the sun, the earth could not inhabit life. If we were just a few miles further away from the sun, that the earth could not accommodate life. Does it make more sense? Which is a safer bet? There are some traditional proofs Proofs is in scare quotes there because that word can be kind of misleading. But these are some things that in the history of the church, Anselm, other folks uh, during the uh, scholastic period came up with, uh, probably I I didn't do a good job of including who came up with each one, but uh, let's go through those really quickly. This, again, this is just for for the purpose of exposing you to them. The cosmological argument. In other words, every known thing has a cause. Every known thing has a cause. Everything that came into existence had a beginning. Long before the science caught up to this question, in other words, today the prevailing scientific consensus is that the world and the universe had a beginning. They call it the Big Bang. I actually believe in the Big Bang. I just believe that the cause was God. In other words... Something can't come from nothing. We can't even imagine what nothing would look like. What would it mean to imagine nothing? That's that's a self-referentially absurd statement to say that nothing exists, right? That nothing can't exist. Everything that is came into being. The, the, The universe now is expanding from a beginning point, we are learning through some different things. Of course, we are only learning more detail about the things that God declared in His Word long before the science ever caught up to support it. Since the world came into being, what caused it to come into being? Well, there had to be something that never came into being to cause the earth to come into being. God has eternally existed. He's he's existed in eternity past and He will exist into eternity future. There's the cosmological argument. Then there's the teleological argument. There's a Greek word that this comes from, telos. You can see T-E-L-E, right? The telos means a goal or the end or the purpose. What is the telos of your life? What is the goal or purpose of your life? We all know that life goes better when we have something to live for, right? What is the purpose of our lives? Have we been created for any purpose? 
why is it that our lives go better when we live it according to a meaning? When we live it according to some kind of goal? Why is that? The world seems to have a purpose. And everything seems, even everything up the food chain has a, it fits in a, a perfect little spot so that the world can continue to be sustained. We know that ultimately at the bottom of that, God sustains His creations. Colossians chapter 1, He didn't only create it, but He sustains it by the word of His power. But unless we see, unless everything we see is meaningless and accidental, there must be an intelligent force behind the purposefulness of creation. Even the, the smallest little... You know, they're having trouble in, in the state of Maine right now on the beaches in southern Maine. People have this black stuff that's on their, that, that's on their feet, and it's, it can't, it, you can't hardly get it off. I mean, you rub it with all kinds of abrasives and soaps and whatever is not coming off, and they found that it's because of these tiny little microscopic um, um, bugs, insects, that are, are around the coastal areas, that they have these wings. And you can only determine this by putting some retired person from NOAA, uh, you know, put this under a microscope and found that the wings on these tiny, tiny, tiny insects cause staining when they are crushed repeatedly. And so they've ended up on the shore of this beach. People are walking up and down the beach and their feet are turning black and they can't get this stuff off because even this little insect, and we don't know what the purpose is behind it, but it fits somewhere in the food chain. All we know is it makes our feet turn black, right? So you might go hiking. Have you ever done this? You go hiking, you come across a, a pile of rocks across the trail, Right? And you look up and you see this big bare spot on the side of the mountain where there's no foliage. And you see it's just mud. And what's happened is a mudslide has occurred. Right? You can conclude what's happened here has been accidental. Nobody planned this. Right? As a matter of fact, it's a good thing nobody was standing there when it happened. You know, there's also, I don't, this is a total aside, but you know I-40 through in North Carolina, right when it comes into... Tennessee. It's called the Gorge, right? They put I-40 on the wrong side of the mountain, and they knew that it was on the wrong side of the mountain when they did it. But I guess people had bought and sold the land knowing that the contract was coming and it had, you know, the right people were in the right place at the right time. But in college, a geologist that I had, I had to take a geology class, and he said, you know, rocks come up out of the ground and they're either either coming this way or coming that way. And they come up this way and then they, they kind of fall off over time. They're emerging from the earth's crust. These tectonic plates are it's coming up and it's falling off or it's coming up this way and falling off. Well, on I-40, the road is down here and the rocks are coming up out of the ground this way and then they're falling off every so often, right? There are going to be rock slides on I-40 through North Carolina in the mountains forever because of just how it's working. You might, so you might come across this on a trail and see this is just kind of an accidental occurrence. Or you might be hiking and you come across a little stream and you see, have you ever seen this, where people like to stack these rocks up and make these little towers with them. I don't know, for some reason, people who are really into nature and hiking do this. And you come along, you see somebody's made this little tower with one rock on top of another and they're very skinny and you don't even see how they can quite balance, but people make you know, these little things. You would not come up to that and conclude, wow, there must have been an earthquake just before I got here that assembled all of these rocks up in this perfect little, perfectly balanced little tower, 
right? No, you would, you would conclude that somebody intelligent who had the capacity to figure out balance stacked these rocks maybe a day or a couple hours before you came along, right? So this is, this is the teleological argument. What makes more sense that through billions and billions of years, finally the rocks stacked themselves or somebody intelligent came along and in about five minutes did this, right? Which one makes more sense? When we see the, the complexity of the human eye, how is it? Like, it's a mystery how we can look out and see one another. Uh, the distance of the earth from the sun, respiration. I mean, just the fact that we're able to breathe right now is a miracle. I mean, the fact that our bodies are sustained by breathing in air and then the things that are required for respiration to occur, for us to continue to live, the ability of humans just to communicate through why is it that we have communication? Why is it that we have language? Well, I mean, there is a God who is a speaking God who created us in His image. Wouldn't it be possible for us to live and just munch on grass or whatever and never have the capacity to communicate like many other creatures in the earth? But we do. Further, uh, while adaptations, some people call this microevolution, adaptations certainly occur, this large-scale macroevolution of species, it depends on believing that things get better through mutation. Typically and overwhelmingly, things get worse through mutation. If you have a mutation occur, it's typically going to cause a lot of very difficult life circumstances in your life. Typically, things don't get better over millions and millions of years of mutation. Things get worse when a mutation occurs. Again, I'm not a scientist, but these are just some brief sketches. I can point you to some books that are even actually... There are very thoughtful Christians. One of them, William Lane Craig, has written a book that I don't even understand. I had to read it, but I mean, he gets into the depths of string theory and everything necessary. Basically, it's called, the book is called A Reasonable Faith, and you come out of the other side of reading that book saying, I don't know enough to, to adjudicate all of these things, but what I know is we're not stupid. Like, we have at least a foundation for why it's reasonable to believe the things that we believe. Uh, then there's number three, the ontological argument. I know I've only given this a, a line or two. Because we have the sense, this is kind of what uh, the reformers were saying when they said the census divinitatis. This is kind of what we see taught in the scriptures to a degree, because we have the sense that there's got to be something greater, there's got to be something bigger than us, the, uh, a being that is greater than which none can be imagined, there must be a reality that this sense points toward. Why would we have this sense if it's not real? I know that these are all independently, they don't, they don't push everything over the edge, but together they're helpful. And then lastly, the moral argument. The sense of right and wrong seems to be universal. Now, different cultures have different ideas about what is right and wrong. But we all have a sense of right and wrong. We are all endued with a sense of justice. Remember, friends, this is why we get angry. We get angry because we have this inner sense of justice that sometimes gets twisted, right? And we act out in anger toward things that we might not. Or we end up not angry about things that should be enraging, we are all endued with a sense of justice. I'm, I'm not trying to justify rage. I just, that's just the word that came to my mind there. But sometimes we don't get righteously angry about things that are sinful. Sometimes we do get angry about things that 
we should not get angry about. So when I use the word rage, I just need to amend that. So, this is honestly why we have so many disagreements. We all have a sense of what is right. Will this sense ever be satisfied, ultimately? Will there ever be anyone to set things right? It's very difficult to believe that the murderers and the rapists who got away with it in this world, if there's no God, friends, they just get away with it in the end. They just end up getting away with it. Here's an objection. This is how someone might push back. When Tim Keller went and spoke before Google, uh, one of their Google Talks, which I would encourage you. It's about an hour long. It's an incredible... He actually did it in two parts, but the most recent one was incredible. He was talking about his book called The Reason for God. Tim Keller went to Google, and they have these forums, and uh, so he did one of the talks at Google, and he... Um, set forth why, um, why belief in God is, uh, is important, or at least you should understand it. One of the pushbacks he got was this, that morality is just a pragmatic, evolved trait which explains how humans are able to form societies together. In other words, there's really not right and wrong there's just what we have all gotten together and agreed works. In other words, it's not objectively bad to murder somebody. We just as a society have come together and we have agreed to make some laws that say that's just not a good idea. If there is no God, there is no ultimate right and wrong. There is just our opinion. And we can make laws that say one thing. We can make laws that say another and by the way, if there's a law on the books that you think is unjust, you don't really have a right to say it's unjust. You just have a right to say, I just need to get a bunch of people like me together and change the law because I happen to think it's better. There's no ultimate right and wrong. <clears throat> Here's the answer. I've already kind of started to answer it. it. This would mean that morality doesn't really exist. It's just what works, just pragmatics. Under this idea, nothing is really right. I've already said this. At any time in human history... Oh, also, this seems to go against the grain of how human history has flowed. At any time in human history, when humans were able to deny others, uh, to deny others rights or even the right to life in order to advance their own agenda, they have. Right? I don't know if you've noticed, but the history of the world has been a history of conquest and pillage. You know, and only in the last couple hundred years have we found a little bit of peace on this continent in this place called the United States of America. But our experience here and now is not even the experience of most people around the world today. Around the world today, tribes are still fighting tribes and, and nations are still trying to, uh, to, to subsume other nations. It hasn't even borne itself out in history. Lastly, if morality is just an evolved trait then we can dispense with it whenever we like because basically we came up with it ourselves. So if we all evolve to the place where we determine that morality is no longer useful, we can just, get, we can just dispense with the idea, right? Because it no longer works for us. Here's a few closing thoughts. Here's the real reason we believe. The real reason we believe is not because we've been persuaded by everything that I've said up to this point. Now, 
hopefully the things that we've talked about up to this point can be helpful to, to kind of expel some maybe not well thought through doubts that crop up even in the minds of believers. The real reason we believe is this. If it is true, if it is true that none is righteous, no, not one. If it is true that no one understands, no one even seeks for God, Romans 3 tells us. If it is true with Psalm 16 that apart from God I have no good thing, if it is true that there is no fear of God before our eyes, talking about humanity, if it is true that in our case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, if it is true that Satan is actively blinding the eyes of people before belief in Christ, then friends, it's going to take a movement of God on our hearts for us to believe. Thankfully, God has promised this and provides it. Look at the comfort of Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then Ephesians 2.8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, we ultimately believe because God is moving in history through His gospel. He is moving in such a way that when we hear the gospel, as we're going to learn in the gospel of John, the world is a picture of great darkness, but into that darkness the light has shone. The light, the work. Let me just read it. Why don't I do that? And we'll close. This is so fresh on my mind because I'm studying it even now. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son and from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Even though no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The real reason we believe is, is God. Because He has made Himself clear. He has given us a gospel. And through the preaching of His word, we have come to believe. Let's give Him praise for that tonight. Let's give Him praise. Friends, because this has been more of a teaching time, I'm going to offer to try to answer any questions that you may have. Are there any questions that I can try to address?
okay, well, why don't we pray and we'll be dismissed. I hope you have a great night. Let's pray. God, you were so good to us. You have given us not only your scriptures, which we believe are sufficient, you have given us the light of nature. You've, you've made yourself known in a certain sense when we look out and we see beauty and we see your creation. I pray, God, that the things we've talked about tonight would be used of you to encourage a life of faith and commitment to Jesus. Thank you, God, that you've given us the opportunity to come to you, to see you as good. Thank you that you took on flesh to make yourself known. God, I pray that as we preach the gospel, many would come to believe. Lord, would you open blind eyes? Would you pierce hardened hearts? Would you take away the hearts of stone? Give us hearts of flesh. We pray that even now for ourselves. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.